Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Good morning, good morning. Today, God speaks to us from John 2, 1 through 18. Al tercer día se celebraron unas bodas en Cana de Galilea, y allí estaba la madre de Jesús. También Jesús y sus discípulos fueron invitados a la boda. Cuando se terminó el vino, la madre de Jesús le dijo, ¿Ya no tienen vino? Jesús le dijo, ¿Quién tienes conmigo, mujer? Mi hora aún no ha llegado. Su madre dijo a los que servían, Hagan todo lo que Él les diga. En ese lugar había seis tinajas de piedra para agua, como las que usan los judíos para el rito de la purificación, cada una con capacidad de más de 50 litros. Jesús les dijo, llenen de agua estas tinajas, y las llenaron hasta arriba. Entonces les dijo, ahora saquen lo que está ahí, y llévanselo al catador. Y se lo llevaron. El catador probó el agua hecha vino, sin que él supiera de dónde era. Aunque sí lo sabían los sirvientes que habían sacado el agua. Entonces llamó al esposo y le dijo, Todo el mundo sirve primero el buen vino, y cuando ya han bebido mucho, entonces sirve el, buen, el menos bueno. Pero tú has reservado el buen vino hasta ahora. Este principio de cenales hizo Jesús en Cana de Galilea. Y manifestó su gloria, y sus discípulos creyeron en él. Después de esto, él, su madre, sus hermanos y sus discípulos descendieron a Caupernam, pero no estuvieron ahí por muchos días. Estaba cerca la Pascua de los judíos, y Jesús subió a Jer Jerusalén y halló en el templo a los que vendía bueyes, ovejas y palomas, y a los campistas ahí sentados. Entonces hizo un azote de cuerdas y expulsó del templo a todos y a las ovejas y bueyes, esparción, las monedas de cambistas y volcó las mesas. Y dijo a los que vendían palomas, saquen eso de aquí y no conviertan la casa de mi padre en un vendían mercado. Entonces sus discípulos se acordaron de que está escrito, el celo de tu casa me consume. Y los judíos preguntaron, ¿Y a qué haces esto? ¿Qué señal nos das? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Hannah. So, this might be a little uh, cliche, but uh, first impressions really do make a difference, don't they, in life? Uh, the first time that you meet someone, the experience can really set a particular tone for future interactions that you're going to inevitably have with that person. Uh, sometimes those interactions are not a fair representation of the person uh, that you've interacted with. Other times, they are spot-on representations of that person. Of course, time will tell exactly how we're supposed to um, uh, truly know someone. And I imagine uh, many of us, I know myself included, uh, I can think back to different times that I wish I could make a different first impression for whatever reason. I'm sure we've got those things in mind. But whether uh, fair or not, first impressions really do set a tone when you first meet someone. And here in chapter two of John, 
we see the apostle setting a very particular tone, one that will set us up for what we're going to see far beyond uh, chapter two and into the rest of the book of John. The book of uh, John here is giving us our first impressions of Jesus. Now today we are going to be continuing uh, our series, a series that we've called A Public Faith, uh, examining the claims of Christianity. Uh, And in this series, we are studying the book of John as a way of honing in on some of the most central claims of Christianity. Uh, And we're doing so because John, at the very uh, end of his gospel account, uh, in chapter 20, uh, he's describing all of the different events that he's uh, laid out throughout his book. And at the very end, he basically says, listen, There's no way that I could possibly tell you all the things that happened in the life of Jesus, but what I have told you, I did so, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing, in believing, you might have life in his name. And that is our hope throughout this series, that whether you call yourself a Christian or maybe you're processing what you believe about the Christian faith, our hope is that to varying degrees, We all might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that in believing, we may have life in his name. Now, if you were with us last week, we dove into John's uh, very bold assertion about Jesus in chapter 1, namely that Jesus is the word or the logos. The logos in Greek philosophy was uh, the logic of the universe. That uh, it's, it's what gives this, uh, our existence meaning and purpose. It's the foundational truth that sits behind and undergirds all truth and all knowledge. And that Jesus is the one through whom and for whom all things were made. That Jesus as the word, as the logos, he's the embodied mind of God who speaks to us in comprehensible ways. But now, having described the incomprehensible one who has been made comprehensible, John now shifts to presenting us with a ministry of Jesus. And in particular, John provides some very practical pictures and examples of what it means in back in chapter 1, verse 17, where he says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, he has been very kind of philosophical, up in the clouds, not super tangible in what he's describing. But what we see here in chapter 2 is John beginning to show us very tangibly what he was describing in chapter 1, that Jesus is grace and truth, and that grace and truth have come through him. And these tangible pictures, again, are our very first, the world's first impressions of Jesus, impressions that are going to shape everything that is to come. And so chapter 2 is actually extraordinarily important for us in order to see what is to come later on throughout his gospel narrative. So, with that said, let's consider what we see here in our passage. First, we're going to see that Jesus makes a gracious first impression. Second, we're going to see that Jesus makes a truthful first impression. And then lastly, we're going to see why both matter. Okay, so first, a gracious first impression. So begin with this very famous story of Jesus' first miracle the turning of water into wine at the wedding of Canaan. Now, the uh, weddings at the time were massive events, right? Much like our day today, they were massive events, but even more so, these feasts at some of these events, they could last upwards of a week. And the bridegroom was responsible to ensure that there was enough provision made for all of those who were in attendance, and to not have enough, at minimum, was a great shame on your family. 
But what's also really interesting is that there's actually some evidence that uh, if you ran out, you were actually vulnerable to uh, lawsuits at the time. Uh, they took hospitality very, very seriously. So one takeaway would be, don't get skimpy at your barbecues. This is very important to make sure there's plenty. Now, for whatever reason, we don't know all the reasons, they have run out of a key component of this celebration, which was wine. Which again, at minimum, would have been a great shame on your family. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, knowing the significance of her son, but also knowing the significance of what just took place with them running out of wine, asks Jesus to intervene and to do something about it. And in verse 4, Jesus responds, Woman, why do you involve me? And then he goes on to say, My hour has not yet come. Now, just a couple of things there. First, for what it's worth, to our um, contemporary ears, Jesus calling his mother woman sounds really abrasive, but just so we're clear, it's not. This is actually a, a term of respect. Uh, we might say ma'am or madam. Right? This was a term of honor. Right? So he's not in any way um, degrading or uh, his mother. Let's just be clear on that front. But the second thing is then he says, why do you involve me? In other words, what does this have to do with me? And his concern about whether or not he should get involved is this notion of my hour has not yet come. Now, this is a really important statement because the notion of the hour coming is a big deal throughout the book of John. All throughout the gospel account, the hour referred to Jesus's coming death and his resurrection. In other words, the hour was very much describing the work that Jesus had come to accomplish. And so it is fair to say that he recognizes that his involvement in this issue would begin the work that he came to do. Now, despite his response to Mary, Jesus does nonetheless decide to help. And in doing so, we are implicitly being told to pay very close attention to what he is about to do. Because what we're about to see is his grand entrance that will set the stage for the rest of his, his earthly ministry. The important emphasis here is that Jesus is about to do something that will be a very tangible sign of the great work that he came to accomplish. Now, what does he do? Well, he tells the servants uh, to take the uh, stone water jugs, which would have been huge, and to fill them with water. He then tells them to draw some out, only for them to discover that the water that they had just put in is now wine. And not only is it wine, but it's the best of wine. You know, it's the top shelf stuff that most of us don't ever touch. It's the best. And on top of that, it wasn't just a small amount, but according to verse 6, it was somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons, right? Overflowing. There is this abundance of wine. In the best wine, nonetheless. Now, in isolation, this, this miracle or this sign, as John will often call them, uh, seems like it could just be this show of Jesus' power, right? This power that Jesus has to manipulate creation as the one who created it. And that's absolutely true. Jesus is certainly showing us his power. However, the reason that John will refer to Jesus' miracles often as signs all throughout his gospel account is because they are just that. They are pointing to something greater. And there is a very rich, deep 
message being communicated in this miracle that we will miss if we view this miracle just in isolation. Instead, we actually need to pan back and see the greater context of this miracle. And in particular, if you'll allow me to give you a brief biblical theology of wine, we actually see something very important being communicated through Jesus's miracle, his, this sign here. First thing to keep in mind is that within Jewish thought, wine was for celebration and for rejoicing. In Psalm 104, we're told there that it's, it's wine that gladdens the human heart. That wine for the Jewish people, it was, it was a good gift from God. And even more specifically, all throughout uh, the Old Testament, the prophetic tradition viewed the messianic reign as one with an overflow of wine. I mean, listen to the way the prophet Isaiah describes the messianic reign era that would come in Isaiah uh, 25, chapter 25. This is what the prophet says. He says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast, uh, a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. In other words, Jesus, in turning water into wine, is actually proclaiming this day. He's, he's presenting that this day has come, proclaiming that the kingdom of God, the messianic reign that had been longed for for generations was now upon them by providing them this wine. And he does so by providing the finest of wine. And he does not do it in any kind of limited fashion. Right? It's not a simple or sufficient amount. Rather, he comes and he creates an overflow, an abundance of wine. Now this, my friends, is a picture of God's abundant grace. The grace, according to John, that comes through Jesus Christ. I mean, last week we talked about how in love God speaks to us in comprehensible ways. And so in Psalm 104, when we're told that wine, it gladdens the human heart. And then in, in Isaiah 53, we're told that there will be a banquet with aged wines, the finest of wines. Jesus, in this miracle, in this sign, is saying, I will speak my truths to you in ways that you can comprehend. The gladness of your heart will overflow and be abundant like the best of wine I now present to you. Now, let me say, that said... Let me also just say a couple of things on wine, and in particular, alcohol in general, because as long as we're on the topic, we, may con we, might, we might as well consider this a little bit more fully, because I do recognize that depending on one's uh, upbringing, one's cultural context, one's life experiences, uh, one's understanding of, of these kinds of passages can actually be pretty complex. In fact, these were always passages that were uh, difficult for me to kind of comprehend and navigate through because of my own background and cultural context. And so let me just say a few words about it while we're on the topic. First, there are, there are some who would argue that wine and alcohol more broadly are at best unwise for Christians to engage with. Uh, and at worst, for some, it's even sinful for Christians to utilize uh, alcohol or wine. And I want to just say that there are actually some really good reasons to be very cautious with alcohol. Now, the Bible is very clear that drunkenness and a, a lack of sober-mindedness are certainly sinful. That they are, this is actually a, an abuse of a good gift from God. And we know this to be true. 
that nearly every good gift from God at some point can be abused. Food and sex, for example, are good gifts from God, and yet both are regularly abused when they are not used in the ways that God intends them to be used. So what then are we to make of the Bible's emphasis on wine? Well, some would say that wine, uh, the wine that we're reading about throughout Scripture, and in, even in this parable here, uh, that this wine was not alcoholic, but that it was basically grape juice. Uh, to that, I would say, uh, from uh, a historical and biblical perspective, scholars point out that uh, Jewish people really didn't have a category for unfermented wine, in large part because of the, the reality of the, the fermentation, the agedness uh, that we see described in Isaiah actually emphasizes this gift that gladdens the heart. Uh, and so, in some ways, the fermentation of the wine is part of the theological significance of the wine. Welch's grape juice does not gladden the heart like the finest of wines. <laughs> that said though, wisdom also tells us that wine and alcohol more broadly can be dangerous. And throughout the Bible, there are warnings of what wine can do if not used in a controlled way. And those prohibitions as well as the experiences we have in life, actually can be enough and can be sufficient reasons for us to stay away from alcohol and wine. And that is absolutely a legitimate approach to alcohol and wine. I mean, for whatever reasons, right? If our consciences are burdened by the use of alcohol, please hear me say that we should not use it. If our experiences in life in some way dictates uh, our need or desire to avoid it, we absolutely should avoid it. In fact, though the use of alcohol in controlled and responsible ways is not sinful, to violate one's conscience on this issue actually can be. And this is what uh, the Apostle Paul is getting at in, in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, if you recall, Paul's essentially, uh, especially in, in 1 Corinthians 8, He's describing those that can't, uh, in good conscience, eat foods that have been sacrificed to idols. There's, there's something about their, back, their background, their upbringing, the experiences that they've had in the past, that they could not, in good conscience, eat food sacrificed to idols. And basically, Paul says, you're right. Though you're free to do so, don't violate your conscience, because there is a context that has created your concern, and that concern is valid. And so though we might be free to engage in certain behavior, there might also be unique reasons why we should not. That said, back to the main point. The significance of Jesus' miracle at Canaan, Cana is not just that he's showing his power. Rather, it is a picture of the fulfillment of the promise that there will be an outpouring of his grace. Grace that gladdens the heart like the finest of wine grace of great abundance, not just sufficient, but overflowing grace that came through Jesus Christ. Our first impression of Jesus is that he is one of abundant grace. But the other first impression we get is not just one of grace that came through Jesus Christ, but also of truth, right? Grace and truth have come through Jesus and so not only does Jesus make a gracious first impression, he also makes a truthful one. Now, if Jesus' message were a coin, on one side you would have grace, on the other 
you have truth. And I put it that way because both of these things are actually very important for us to always keep together. And after telling the story of this grace at the wedding, John immediately flips that coin over by telling us a story of Jesus cleansing the temple, which emphasizes Jesus as the one who comes with truth. Now again, this story is another interesting one that we need to consider more fully. Let me begin by saying that uh, every gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell a version of Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, as we've said, each writer of these gospel accounts tells their version of the events from uh, a different perspective because they've got different primary audiences in mind. Uh, that said, the other three gospel writers place their cleansing of the, the temple, that narrative, they actually all place that, uh, that story at the very end of their accounts. John, however, as we're seeing here, is placing the cleansing of the temple at the very beginning. And so, as a result, there are basically two trains of thought on this. Uh, I'm just going to give this to you free. This is really not the point, but I think it's helpful. Number one, some would say that John is not concerned with a chronology as he's telling his account, but rather he's more concerned about a, a theological categorization of these different stories. And so he places a story up front for a theological purpose, unconcerned with the fact that it actually happened later. That's one train of thought. However, there are others that argue that this is not at all what's happening, but rather that here uh, in, in John, what we're seeing is that Jesus clears the temple once, but after he does, uh, as you could imagine, it's only a matter of time before people uh, come back. Those that Jesus kicked out, they just, they come back again and they set up shop again. And so three years later, as recorded by the other writers, Jesus clears it out again. I tend to favor the second uh, version of this, but the bottom line would just be that no one can really know. That said, regardless of how many times Jesus clears the temple, the greater question, and here's what we want to focus in on, is why does Jesus cleanse the temple? And in the context of John's account, what does this have to do with the truth coming through Jesus? Well, consider the, the context of the story. It's Passover, which means that there are sacrifices taking place in the temple, sacrifices for the atonement of sin. And as a result of it being Passover, there are many travelers coming from all over the region to make sacrifices in the temple. However, bringing a sacrifice a long way would have been very difficult for those who are traveling. And in that difficulty, there were those who saw a business opportunity. First, there were animals that were available for purchase for those who couldn't bring their own. Second, there was also a temple tax that needed to be paid, but needed to be paid with a very particular type of currency. So there were money changers who would exchange money for a very uh, high fee, upwards of 12%. Plus, if you factor in uh, the other gospel writers' accounts uh, and their uh, perspectives on the scene, you realize that these businessmen were not only turning the worship of God into a profit, but they were also taking advantage of people, especially the poor. What we see is that the people were being charged these exorbitant rates they were being told that their own sacrifices that maybe they did bring with them were actually not sufficient. And so they needed to buy a pre-approved sacrificial animal from these uh, salesmen, all of which was ultimately this exploitation of those who had no recourse 
And this was done in the name of worshiping God. Now, Jesus, seeing this, refuses to allow it to continue. And so famously, he drives out the livestock, he drives out the money changers, he flips over the tables, and is angry that the house of God had been turned into a market, and according to John's account, had been turned into a den of thieves. And this anger is at both the injustice of this exploitation, but also this irreverence of the people before God. To create such chaos and to exploit the vulnerable in the holiest of places showed an irreverence and utter contempt for God. And Jesus was not going to allow it to continue. See, the the coming of Jesus is not just a proclamation of gladdening hearts. His coming also signifies that there is an irreverence and an even a, a contempt for the things of God. That the injustices, the exploitations, the, the self-centeredness of this world show the extent to which sin is pervasive in the ways that sin has kept us estranged from God. Romans 3, of course, reminds us that no one is righteous, no one does good, no one seeks God. And Jesus comes to proclaim that truth and to confront all of those who are guilty of this irreverence, this contempt for God. Those who do not take God seriously. And as a result, if worship of the true God is to take place, what we're seeing Jesus proclaim here is that there must be a cleansing. This is the truth that comes through Jesus. That we are estranged from God, in need of cleansing. And Jesus has come to bring that cleansing to those who believe. Now why does this matter? And why, in particular, do both of these things matter, grace and truth? Here's why John provides us with these first impressions, pictures of Jesus. Because you and I will almost certainly miss one or the other. And in doing so, we miss the fullness of what God in Christ seeks to accomplish. There are some of us here who, for uh, we love the idea of overflowing wine. We love the idea of this abundant grace. It reminds us of God's love, his desire for me to be fulfilled and to be full of joy, which is true. But we can forget the truth that we are in need of cleansing. And when we do, we fall into the error of believing that God just wants me happy. We fall into this belief that whatever my pursuits are in life, the things that I desire, the things that I believe are going to bring me fulfillment, that I am free to embrace them, even if in the end we end up abusing a good gift of God to do so. I mean, too often, a God of only abundant grace is a God that we do not take seriously. We are hesitant to obey if we obey him at all. A God who is not allowed to confront me or to tell me of my impurity and sin. A God not allowed to flip tables in my life, demanding that I live in accordance with his will, regardless of what I think or what I need or what I want. Jesus with abundant grace, but without truth, is not the true Jesus. Conversely, though, on the other hand, there are some so consumed by the notions of brokenness and sin, that we forget the gladdening of our hearts that God desires to accomplish in us. 
the wine that is a foretaste of a renewed and restored creation free from the burdens and the destructions of this world is the great and abundant grace that God in Christ gives. And my friends, a God of only table-flipping truth is often not one that we can delight in, rest in, weep with, laugh with, a God to enjoy and to love. Jesus with truth, not wrapped in overflowing grace, is not the real Jesus either. But the true God, Jesus, the one full of grace and truth, overflowing abundance and joy, and also confrontingly honest truth, this is Jesus. And this is the first impression that we are to have of Jesus, one of great, great grace and one of confronting truth. And in the end, the great grace that God desires to give, a grace akin again to the abundance of the best wine, ultimately comes through the cleansing accomplished by Jesus. We cannot experience one without the other. And do you know where we see this intersection of God's grace and God's cleansing? Well, look at verse uh, 18 and 19. It says this. So the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to, all, uh, to do all of this? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Now, Jesus is not speaking here of a literal temple. He's talking about his body. He's speaking of his death on the cross when the hour fully comes. And these two verses bring together all that John has been describing here in chapter 2. Grace and truth. Abundance and cleansing. Because on the cross, we see Jesus, our willing Savior, taking our place, taking what we deserve. But at the same time, we also see the cleansing power of his blood poured out. It is through the cross that we experience both his abundant grace and his cleansing power. And in his power, he is resurrected to life, that we might also experience that resurrection power. Let me just close with this. Again, remember Jesus, when he comes into the temple, he's cleansing this temple, right? To make this temple uh, a, a temple that brings true worship to God. But do you remember what 1 Corinthians 13 tells us about who those are, what we are as we trust in Jesus. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, don't, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? In other words, God's abundant grace comes to declare the truth of our need for cleansing. And it culminates in the rising up, the raising up of, of the temple the place where God's presence resides. And in Jesus, we are that temple experiencing new life. It is his grace and his cleansing power all coming to fruition in the power of his resurrection, a resurrection and the power that is extended to us as we hope and trust in him. So for all of us, he would be my encouragement. Is number one for us to see Jesus as one of grace and truth, one that desires to gladden our hearts like that of the finest of wines, but one who also confronts us with truth, one that 
knows the ways in which we have been irreverent and even have been contemptuous before God. The, the, the ways in which we have not honored God as God, he confronts us in that as well. And so my, my encouragement would be to see him as both. But also, I would say, is to name the ways maybe you particularly tend to err. Do you tend to see Jesus as this God of great grace, forgetting that he also desires to confront you in your sin? Or do you tend to see Jesus as this God of great truth, but you forget to delight in him, experiencing this abundant grace that brings joy and rest and fulfillment? And ask the Spirit of God to make us so that we can see Jesus in his fullness, not one or the other, but as the one who comes full of grace and truth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace and truth. And we thank you, Lord, that your word reminds us of the ways that sometimes we can forget both of those realities. And so, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would help us to see the fullness of Jesus. That we would experience the great love and grace that he pours over us, overflowing. And as we experience that love and that grace, we would also recognize the way that he confronts us with truth. Confronts us with the reality that we are in need of cleansing. And make clear to us the ways that we have not honored you the way that we should, obeyed you in the ways that we should. Help us to see Jesus as one of grace and truth in the fullness of who he is. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.